Do y'all like music? I, I love music. Uh, literally, I majored in college in music. And everywhere you go, there's music playing. I have, I have music playing. If I'm awake, there is music playing somewhere. In my car, in my office, in my bathroom, in my study room. On and on and on. There's music playing. There's music everywhere. At the coffee shops, at gas stations, on the radio, television, commercial, television commercials. The music industry is a $40 billion per year industry. And who is responsible for that technological innovation now that we have that we could play a song at any minute and pop in a CD? I'll tell you, the kids now, they're, they're beginning to collect record players again. They're almost going backwards, but I guess they like the novelty. <laughs> Who's responsible? Well, in 1877, a gentleman named Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, or better known as the record player. And this was a huge advancement in the course of human history, meaning that the human voice could be spoken one time, recorded, and then played over and over again as many times as you wish. That means that they can now record lectures, instructions, philosophical debates, sermons, and even music to be played over and over again. But in 1877, when he first invented and discovered the phonograph, what do you think in the history of the world were the first recorded words of the human voice ever in history? And that would be the familiar children's rhyme entitled, Mary Had a Little Lamb. One of the most familiar children's rhymes in America that goes like this. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It followed her to school one day, which was against the rule, and made the children laugh and play to see the lamb at school. Well, there's been many debates throughout history of who authored that and the illusions that can be drawn from that poem. But I want to bring the sermon today entitled, Mary Had a Little Lamb. And I want us to look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Last week, we looked at Simeon's prayer of praise But today I want to look at his proclamation of prophecy. In Luke chapter 2, after he has prayed his prayer to God, his praise to God in verses 29 through 32, he comes in verse 33, and this is where we're going to pick up today. And the scripture says this, Luke 2, 33. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of Simeon, or I'm seeing spoken of Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. May God bless the reading of his word. As I said today, my title is that Mary indeed had a little lamb, and I want to draw some illustrations from that famous poem. But also, I want you to know this, that the essence of Simeon's proclamation of prophecy is that Jesus is going to come mess up religion. Jesus is going to come mess up the religious system that is currently in place. 
So, as that famous poem begins, Mary had a little lamb, I want to think of the innocence of the Christ child which Mary had in her arms. And as Simeon begins his prophecy, he does not say this king or this savior or this ruler. He says this child. This child is destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. This child, this little baby, will cause people to literally be split. This baby will cause nations to lose their minds and go in an uproar. Doesn't it beg the question, how can a child cause anyone to do anything? I mean, in the course of history, has there been a child who has conquered nations? Or has there been a child who's ruled as an emperor? Has there ever been a child that has been worshipped by shepherds and the richest wise men in the world? Well, I don't know about the rest of history, but I know they worship this one. I know that this child was worshipped. That literally this child was God with us. He was king from the day he stepped on the earth. We always refer to the magi as the wise men, but I want to tell you that they were rich men. That the richest men in the world came to visit Jesus. Not in a hotel room, but in a barn. A rich man took their vacation to a barn. They didn't go to Barbados. They didn't go to Cozumel. They went to a barn with filthy animals and visited a little baby wrapped in nasty cloths. And let me tell you something. If you've got enough money to take a month-long journey with an entourage of men and camels and you come bring gold and a cologne to a baby, you've got expendable income. (laughs) When you travel hundreds and thousands of miles to bring cologne to a baby, you're a rich guy back then. I mean, right now, we can hop in our car, and we can, we can drive 1,000 miles to Canada and get there tomorrow if we wanted to. I've done it before, 24 hours. But see, for them to take a <laughs> hundreds-of-mile journey took, golly, the equivalent of millions of dollars to buy food, supplies for camels, on and on and on. And they did this for a baby. God, that's amazing. And even before he was born... This little baby was upsetting the governmental system. We learn in Matthew chapter 2, King Herod demands that the wise men bring information because the Bible says King Herod wants to kill this little baby. Even before he was out of the womb, he was upsetting the governmental system. This child will cause the rising and falling of many across Israel. So I want us to begin today's meditation by reflecting on the nature of God that dwelt within Jesus, even as a small baby. (laughs) And the nature of God challenges the will of man, even before he came out of the womb. Folks, I want you to know that Mary was not just holding a lamb. She was also holding a lion. Because the lamb of Israel was also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here's the beautiful mystery that God saw fit for his nature to be contained within the life and form of a human body. And more so a baby. A baby who would grow up to represent everything morally perfect about the universe. This baby, this mystery is that Christ was 100% God and 100% man. That doesn't seem like it makes sense. That's like saying I've got a pet that's 100% cat and 100% dog. I mean, that doesn't work. There was a TV show used to be out called Cat Dog. 
about the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Cat and a dog and one thing. It doesn't make sense, does it? That uh, 100% God and 100% man. In theology, we call this the hypostatic union. That the, full, the fullness of God was present in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And yes, the rest of Scripture bears witness to this. Colossians 2, 9 says, The entire fullness of God's nature dwells in Christ. Let that blow us away for a moment. That the full revelation of God, the eternal creator, sovereign of the universe, dwelt in Christ. That's unbelievable. Meaning that everything God was about was in Jesus. God didn't reveal part of himself in Jesus Colossians 2.9 says the fullness of God's nature was in Christ. That everything God wants us to know about himself is in Jesus Christ. You see, for the entire Old Testament, the nature of God was veiled to man, shielded from the full revelation of man. Moses saw the backside of God and his face glowed. Isaiah saw, thought if he saw the full nature of God, it would kill man. But here's the amazing thing. In reality, to see the full nature of God required the killing of God, not the killing of man. God revealed his full nature when Christ died on the cross. For God to fully display himself, his love, his mercy, he would have to die. That is why the cross is the pinnacle of history. It's the pinnacle of philosophy, science, existence. Everything about God and the cosmos and the universe is in the cross. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about the two natures of Christ. You see, it doesn't make sense to our logic for 100% God, 100% man to dwell within one another. That this child would cause the rise and fall in Israel Matter of fact, it doesn't make sense to most of the world that God, isn't God the opposite of man? How can those two things coexist? Isn't God everything that man is not? Well, that was true for 4,000 years until Jesus stepped on the scene and Jesus was fully God and fully man. Mary was literally holding the creative force of the universe in her hands. St. Thomas Aquinas in his apologetic defense, said that the universe requires a beginning. Matter of fact, the Big, get, the big Bang did more help to the Christians than the atheists because it shows there was a beginning to the universe. The universe did indeed begin. That it had a start. It had a, a, a point from which all things came. And St. Thomas Aquinas knew this. Even Aristotle, the secular philosopher hundreds of years earlier, knew that causes require a cause and there must be a first cause. And Aristotle didn't know Christ, but he knew there was a first cause and he called this God. Let me tell you, Mary was holding the first cause. Mary was holding the first mover. Mary was holding the first thing. As John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was God. Colossians 1.16 says, by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, all things created by him and for him. <laughs> when Jesus stepped on the scene, I imagine the realization eventually came that I made all this and all this is for me. You see that? When my wife makes me a birthday cake, I say, man, that's for me. 
Jesus made it and it was for him. This child, this lamb, this innocent babe dwelt within him the full creative power that spoke the universe into existence. And the rhyme says it followed her to school one day, which was against the rule. So not only did Mary have a lamb, but the lamb came into the school system. The lamb came into the instructional system and started messing things up. I want you to think about the rigid nature of a school system before we talk about scripture here. Think about the rules in the school system, the instruction, the defined system of discipline. And then here comes this lamb messing up the whole system. Teacher trying to teach a lesson about reading, writing, arithmetic. And this lamb comes and messes everything up. That was against the rule. You can't do it that way. That's not how it's supposed to happen. That's what happened with Jesus. When the lamb came to school, it messes up the system. Jesus messed up the religious system. For 4,000 years, the systems of man were based on religion. And what I mean by religion is laws, custom, and tradition in which man attempts to access God. Religion is man reaching out to God. But Christianity is God reaching down to man. Can somebody help me for a moment there? Religion is our attempts to try to get because of our own righteousness out to God. But Christianity is when God came and reached man. See, the problem is man has a really short arm. (laughs) We can't reach very far. But Isaiah 59 says the arm of the Lord is not too short to save that it literally reaches across the entire universe and comes and pulls us out of the miry clay, sets our foot upon a rock, brings us salvation through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is a picture of the customs of man trying to access God. In the Old Testament, all of them think that their rules and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all those things are going to help them get access to God. But here's the whole thing. The point of the Old Testament is it didn't work. It doesn't work. Man cannot get access to God by being good enough. That's the point of all the laws. Why are there 600 laws in the Old Testament? To show man he can never be righteous. He can never make it. There's not enough steps. That's why the Tower of Babel, that's why God dispersed the nations, because they wanted to reach God. It was a physical symbol of spiritually what the Old Testament was. They were trying to ascend the structure to righteousness, but it won't work. This is why Paul says the Old Covenant... The Old Testament was never intended to work because it shows us that it never did. This week, my wife and I were having a discussion about the Old Testament and the law and its applications to our life. And we came to the conclusion the Old Testament was to show us that man's legal attempts will not bring access to God. So my wife asked the question, then what's the application What's the application to our life? And my friend, let me tell you the application because the entire Old Testament points us to Jesus. That when we read of the failures again and again and again among Israel, those are our failures. When we read of the sin of Adam, that is our sin. In Adam, we all died. When we read of the sin of David, that's our sin. Every one of us were in those positions. And it shows us that no one on our own attempts could have gotten righteousness unless God got a hold of us. So when I read the Old Testament, I'm continually pointed to the new because I'm saying, God, help, help. 
I can't do it on my own. So this is what Simeon says next. He says, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Now in the JWT, that's the Jesse Watkins translation, it says this. Jesus is going to mess up the religious people. He's going to mess the religious people up. You see, the laws in the Old Testament are not there to help us to be righteous, but to show us that we can't and that we need Jesus. This is why righteousness comes from him, and Jesus frees us from religion by giving us a righteousness through grace. The gospel is freedom from religion, not in religion. God does not call you to a religious system. He calls you to himself. And in intimacy is where we find fruit. We don't find fruit in the law. We find fruit in Christ by abiding in him. By persisting in his presence. By enjoying his nature. That's where fruit comes. Some people say, if you keep preaching this message of grace, people will stop working for the Lord. Let me tell you something. I hope some of them start, stop working and start worshiping for the Lord because we don't work to get salvation. We worship because we have salvation. And there's a lot of people working hard for the Lord because they're trying to get something that Jesus already gave them. That's not what God calls you to. God didn't call you to a job. He called you to a relationship. I go to a job to work. But I go home to be with my honey because I love her. That's the difference between a job and a relationship. One, you work. One, you enjoy. And when I enjoy my relationship with my wife, guess what? The relationship is fruitful. When I enjoy the Lord, the relationship is fruitful because we exist in a union that Christ married me into. When our life becomes worship, fruit happens. You remember that bumper sticker came out before Forrest Gump said, you know, happens, crap happens? I want to get a bumper sticker that says fruit happens. When we abide in Christ, fruit happens. That's the natural result of Christianity. Fruit comes into your life. Lauren's probably going to print me one up the next weekend. Matter of fact, let me tell you that the Old Testament was work, but the New Testament is rest. Oh, let me say that again. The Old Testament was work, the New Testament is rest. And when we rest in Christ, fruit happens. You need to write that down, go home and meditate on it. The Old Testament was work, New Testament is rest. And when we rest in God, fruit happens. You see, I know some of you got confused last week because of the sermon. One of the things I said was that we don't read our Bible to get peace with God. And some of you misinterpreted that. Well, I don't have to read my Bible. That's not what I said. Our Bible doesn't bring peace with God. Our Bible is an overflow of peace with God. Brother Russell, oh my gosh, Holy Spirit, line this up. The Bible's drinking from the saucer. It's just an overflow of that joy and that salvation that comes from peace with God. Can I tell you a personal testimony that I read my Bible 10 times more now that I have peace with God than I did when I thought I had to get it? I enjoy it more. 
And I don't abstain from it because I'm afraid of guilt and condemnation. I don't approach the world and say, oh gosh, it's going to condemn me today. Praise God. The Holy Spirit already condemned me before I became a Christian. And now my life is realizing the righteousness that I've been given. And the more I see that righteousness, the more victorious I become. I don't come to the scripture to see sin. I come to see righteousness because that's going to liberate me. I thank the Lord he has transformed me and set me free from legalism that I was trapped in so long that Jesus messed up my religious system. I was holding myself in bondage and Christ was standing there with the key. And I was keeping the door shut from the inside in my own system of works and self-based righteousness and Christ had the key all along. And when I finally realized that I needed to stop making peace with God and getting to a level and start realizing that Jesus made peace with God and then just realized that Jesus already had the key. That I could let myself out from the inside because Christ was standing there. I was trapping myself in my religious works. The key was Jesus, not me. Jesus broke the religious system of Israel. Jesus broke the system of the world. And he's going to break the system of Jesse Watkins. And he's going to break your system uh, that you have. And unless he breaks your system, you will never live in victory. If you want to break free, Jesus is going to have to break through. And get you outside of yourself. And stop making you the center of your Christianity. Oh God, why is this happening to me? What are you doing to me? Praise the Lord, that's what I've been preaching for four months. That trials bring about joy because trials point us to God himself and we're pushed into God himself. Joy comes about. Maybe God's saying, it keeps on happening so that you'll get the picture. (laughs) That it's not about you. It's about him, and we're, we're tested in the fire. A good blacksmith keeps the metal in the fire to strengthen it, to sharpen it, to hone it. You see, that's what happened in 1522 when Martin Luther broke free from the institutional church because he realized that teaching righteousness, I'm sorry, that righteousness does not come through works. The church at that time was teaching that before you can be justified, there must be works to demonstrate righteousness. But what happened is Martin Luther in 1522 started reading the word of God for himself and realized that all men are sinful and none of us are capable of bringing about righteousness. So we can't bring about righteousness before we're justified. And here's what he realized. The cross justified me and now righteousness comes forth. You see, that's a 500-year-old system. But let me tell you something. There's still churches preaching it today. There's still churches preaching man-based righteousness. That you can be good enough for God. Let me help you out today, friend. You can't. I don't care if we've been Sunday school teachers for 50 years. God's not impressed. Miss Betty's probably the sweetest lady on the whole wide world. God wasn't impressed with Miss Betty. Ain't that the truth? God was impressed with Jesus. And the reason we can teach Sunday school and the reason we can worship, the reason we can preach is because it relies on him and not on our own works. Once we realize that God will never be satisfied with my efforts, we can take a rest and say, okay, now I get it. He's satisfied with Christ. And I can rest in his righteousness and fruit will flow from rest, not from our self-based attempts to get God's favor. The church at the time was preaching an anti-gospel And there's many churches today preaching the same anti-gospel that man needs to bring about his own righteousness. But friend, you can't. 
It's a downward spiral. I'm going to try to bring about my righteousness, but I can't. I'm going to try to get peace with God, but I can't. Now, I've got to do more and more. It leads to more guilt, more condemnation. Let me free you from that today. Let me help somebody today. Some of you don't need to get free from sin. Jesus already did that. You need to get free from self. Get free from your own self-righteousness that keeps you in bondage to think Christianity is about you and you just need to start abiding in the vine. Stop working to start resting. God has called us to himself. Many times in my Christianity, I elevated the work above the relationship. And I would spin my wheels, spin my wheels, spin my wheels, working for God. Seeing no victory. No victory. And you know what? Like that car, I finally had to give up. And finally had to put it in neutral. And let something else pull me along. Our own effort, we're going to spin, we're going to get stuck, we're going to get in a rut. Rest in Jesus. Jesus will cause the rising and falling of many. Jesus will do it, not you. Jesus will work through your family, not you. Is anybody still with me today? As that rhyme says, Jesus made the children laugh at play. I'm sorry, made the children laugh at play to see the lamb at school. Here's the thing. It doesn't just call the falling of many, but also the rising of many. He causes the fall of the self-righteous, but the rising of the humble. That those who come before God with a humble and contrite spirit, we bow before him. But he doesn't leave us there. He picks us up, brushes us off, and sets us on a journey of loving him. Jesus causes the rising of many who are humble. Thank you, Jesus, that once we see that his work is accomplished, that he accomplished my righteousness, that he accomplished my peace, that he accomplished your sanctification and justification. Once you see that, can I tell you what freedom that brings to your life? Man, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Some people get it wrong. They think the Spirit of the Lord is there's bondage and condemnation. I haven't read that in the Bible, Pastor Enoch. Is there a Haitian translation people are getting this from? There's freedom in the Spirit of the Lord. Why are so many people bound up? Let me give you a hint. It's not because of Jesus. It's because of their self. Because of the old nature that still says... You can't do it. Devil tried to attack me this morning. I just rebuked him. I said, devil, you're defeated. Tyler's listening to worship in the bathroom. Bella says, daddy, you know what? The enemy's been defeated. I said, shout hallelujah. He sure has. What victory that brings to a weary soul when you realize that your sin is gone. That Jesus in bodily form, this little baby grew up to be a man. And in bodily form, his sins were placed on himself. And he took the punishment for you and I so that you and I can have freedom. The message of the gospel causes the self-righteous to fall. Because it says that none of us were good enough. No one can produce the righteousness of their own to be justified. The mercy of Christ washes away our sins and mistakes. See, some of you, let me tell you, some of you, you've been carrying around a failure. 
You've been carrying around a mistake that Christ has already carried. You've been carrying around a mistake in your life that Christ has already carried. This is why he says, Come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what does he say? Rest. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a job. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a harder lifestyle. No, my friend, he's going to give you rest. And once we find rest, we realize there's victory in Jesus Christ and there's freedom. And now, praise the Lord, come hell or high water, I'm free. You see what I'm saying? The snowy, mo- the snowy roads might keep us away from church. And listen, you didn't live in Midland. There was people falling into ditches, knocking over my mailbox on Wednesday. Literally, Lord, Lord gave me a brand new mailbox. Someone wrecked and there was a truck upside down in my front yard. But the Lord works through all things, praise God. The young men were okay. You see, God was mad at his son. He punished his own son so that you could be redeemed. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus became a son of man so that we could become sons of God. Who are you today? Are you still a son of man or are you called a son of God? A child of the king. Let me conclude. The scripture says, He will be a sign that will be spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. I'm going to propose a last verse for the poem written in the 1800s, and it goes like this Why does the Lamb love Mary so? The children did reply, Because Mary is a sinner too, and her Lamb will have to die. See, the story of the lamb is not about how much Mary loved it, but about how much the lamb loved Mary. That one day she was going to stand there before her baby crucified on a tree and realizing that her son was dying for her as well. To see your only, your, to see your son to be subjected to that torture on the cross and imagine what she felt, but imagine what God felt. And he did that for you and I. This is why, as I said, the full nature of God was contained in the cross. Because when you see that, you'll say, my God, he loves me. Friend, the invitation today is to get set free from legalism. Get set free from the law. Come into a life of abiding in Christ where we spend time in the word of God because we enjoy him and because we love him and because he loves us and we're not trying to get God's approval because praise the Lord, we're never gonna get it. Jesus already got that approval. Get set free from that condemnation. Jesus came up on the scene, messed up the religious system, but Jesus calls us forth to a life of victory and freedom.